Section 24 of Prefaces and Prologues to Famous Books. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Denny Sayers. Prefaces and Prologues to Famous Books. Edited by Charles W. Eliot. Preface to Shakespeare by Samuel Johnson. Part three. I can say with great sincerity of all my predecessors what I hope will hereafter be said of me, that not one has left Shakespeare without improvement, nor is there one to whom I have not been indebted for assistance and information. Whatever I have taken from them, it was my intention to refer it to its original author, and it is certain that what I have not given to another I believed, when I wrote it, to be my own. In some, perhaps, I have been anticipated, but if I am ever found to encroach upon the remarks of another commentator, I am willing that the honour, be it more or less, should be transferred to the first claimant, for his right, and his alone, stands above dispute. The second can prove his pretensions only to himself, nor can himself always distinguish invention, with sufficient certainty, from recollection. They have all been treated by me with candour, which they have not been careful of observing to one another. It is not easy to discover from what cause the acrimony of a scholiast can naturally proceed. The subjects to be discussed by him are of very small importance. They involve neither property nor liberty, nor favour the interest of sect or party. The various readings of copies, and different interpretations of a passage, seem to be questions that might exercise the wit without engaging the passions. But whether it be that small things make mean men proud, and vanity catches small occasions, or that all contrariety of opinion, even in those that can defend it no longer, makes proud men angry. There is often found in commentaries a spontaneous strain of invective and contempt, more eager and venomous than is vented by the most furious controvertist in politics against those whom he is hired to defame. Perhaps the lightness of the matter may conduce to the vehemence of the agency, when the truth to be investigated is so near to inexistence as to escape attention, its bulk is to be enlarged by rage and exclamation. That to which all would be indifferent in its original state may attract notice when the fate of a name is appended to it. A commentator has indeed great temptations to supply by turbulence what he wants of dignity to beat his little gold to a spacious surface, to work that to foam, which no art or diligence can exalt to spirit. The notes which I have borrowed or written are either illustrative, by which difficulties are explained, or judicial, by which faults and beauties are remarked, or emendatory, by which deprivations are corrected. The explanations transcribed from others 
if I do not subjoin any other interpretation, I suppose commonly to be right. At least I intend, by acquiescence, to confess that I have nothing better to propose. After the labours of all the editors, I found many passages which appeared to me likely to obstruct the greater number of readers, and thought it my duty to facilitate their passage. It is impossible for an expositor not to write too little for some, and too much for others. He can only judge what is necessary by his own experience, and how long soever he may deliberate will at last explain many lines which the learned will think impossible to be mistaken, and omit many for which the ignorant will want his help. These are censures merely relative, and must be quietly endured. I have endeavoured to be neither superfluously copious, nor scrupulously reserved, and hope that I have made my author's meaning accessible to many who before were frightened from perusing him, and contributed something to the public, by diffusing innocent and rational pleasure. The complete explanation of an author not systematic and consequential, but desultory and vagrant, abounding in casual allusions and light hints, is not to be expected from any single scholiast. All personal reflections, when names are suppressed, must be, in a few years, irrecoverably obliterated, and customs, too minute to attract the notice of law, such as modes of dress, formalities of conversation, rules of visits, disposition of furniture, and practices of ceremony, which naturally find places in familiar dialogue, are so fugitive and unsubstantial that they are not easily retained or recovered. What can be known will be collected by chance, from the recesses of obscure and obsolete papers, perused commonly with some other view. Of this knowledge every man has some, and none has much. But when an author has engaged the public attention, those who can add anything to his illustration communicate their discoveries, and time produces what had eluded diligence. To time I have been obliged to resign many passages, which, though I did not understand them, will perhaps hereafter be explained, having, I hope, illustrated some, which others have neglected or mistaken, sometimes by short remarks or marginal directions, such as every editor has added at his will, and often by comments more laborious than the matter will seem to deserve. But that which is most difficult is not always most important and to an editor nothing is a trifle by which his author is obscured. The poetical beauties or defects I have not been very diligent to observe. Some plays have more, and some fewer, judicial observations, not in proportion to their difference of merit, but because I gave this part of my design to chance, and to caprice, the reader, I believe, is seldom pleased to find his opinion anticipated. It is natural to delight more in what we find or make than in what we receive. Judgment, like other faculties, is improved by practice, 
and its advancement is hindered by submission to dictatorial decisions, as the memory grows torpid by the use of a table-book. Some initiation is, however, necessary. Of all skill, part is infused by precept, and part is obtained by habit. I have therefore shown so much as may enable the candidate of criticism to discover the rest. To the end of most plays I have added short strictures, containing a certain censure of faults or praise of excellence, in which I know not how much I have concurred with current opinion. Tut, I have not, by any affectation of singularity, deviated from it. Nothing is minutely and particularly examined, and therefore it is to be supposed that in the plays which are condemned there is much to be praised, and in those which are praised much to be condemned. The part of criticism, in which the whole succession of editors has laboured with the greatest diligence, which has occasioned the most arrogant ostentation, and excited the keenest acrimony, is the emendation of corrupted passages, to which the public attention, having been first drawn by the violence of contention between Pope and Theobald, has been continued by the persecution which, with a kind of conspiracy, has been since raised against all the publishers of Shakespeare. That many passages have passed in a state of deprivation through all the editions is indubitably certain. Of these the restoration is only to be attempted by collation of copies, or sagacity of conjecture. The collator's province is safe and easy, the conjecturer's perilous and difficult. Yet, as the greater part of the plays are extant only in one copy, the peril must not be avoided, nor the difficulty refused. Of the readings which this emulation of amendment has hitherto produced, some from the labours of every publisher I have advanced into the text. Those are to be considered, as in my opinion, sufficiently supported. Some I have rejected without mention, as evidently erroneous. Some I have left in the notes without censure or approbation, as resting in equipoise between objection and defence. And some, which seemed specious but not right, I have inserted with a subsequent animadversion. Having classed the observation of others, I was at last to try what I could substitute for their mistakes, and how I could supply their omissions. I collated such copies as I could procure, and wished for more, but have not found the collectors of these rarities very communicative. Of the editions which chance or kindness put into my hands, I have given an enumeration, that I may not be blamed for neglecting what I had not the power to do. By examining the old copies, I soon found that the later publishers, with all their boasts of diligence, suffered many passages to stand unauthorized, and contented themselves with Rowe's regulation of the text, even where they knew it to be arbitrary, and with a little consideration might have found it to be wrong. Some of these alterations are only the ejection of a word for one that appeared to him more elegant or more intelligible. These corruptions I have often silently 
rectified. For the history of our language, and the true force of our words, can only be preserved by keeping the text of authors free from adulteration. Others, and those very frequent, smoothed the cadence, or regulated the measure. On these I have not exercised the same rigour. If only a word was transposed, or a particle inserted, or omitted, I have sometimes suffered the line to stand, for the inconstancy of the copies is such as that some liberties may be easily permitted. But this practice I have not suffered to proceed far, having restored the primitive diction, wherever it could for any reason be preferred. The emendations, which comparison of copies supplied, I have inserted in the text, sometimes where the improvement was slight, without notice, and sometimes with an account of the reasons of the change. Conjecture, though it be sometimes unavoidable, I have not wantonly nor licentiously indulged. It has been my settled principle that the reading of the ancient books is probably true, and therefore is not to be disturbed for the sake of elegance, perspicuity, or mere improvement of the sense. For though much credit is not due to the fidelity, nor any to the judgment of the first publishers, yet they who had the copy before their eyes were more likely to read it right, than we who read it only by imagination. But it is evident that they have often made strange mistakes by ignorance or negligence, and that therefore something may be properly attempted by criticism, keeping the middle way between presumption and timidity. Such criticism I have attempted to practice, and where any passage appeared inextricably perplexed, have endeavoured to discover how it may be recalled to sense with least violence. But my first labour is always to turn the old text on every side, and try if there be any interstice through which light can find its way. Nor would Huetius himself condemn me, as refusing the trouble of research, for the ambition of alteration. In this modest industry I have not been unsuccessful. I have rescued many lines from the violations of temerity, and secured many scenes from the inroads of correction. I have adopted the Roman sentiment that it is more honourable to save a citizen than to kill an enemy, and have been more careful to protect than to attack. I have preserved the common distribution of the plays into acts, though I believe it to be in almost all the plays void of authority. Some of those which are divided in the later editions have no division in the first folio, and some that are divided in the folio have no division in the preceding copies. The settled mode of the theatre requires four intervals in the play, but few, if any, of our author's compositions can be properly distributed in that manner. An act is so much of the drama as passes without intervention of time or change of place. A pause makes a new act. In every real, and therefore in every imitative action, the intervals may be more or fewer, the restriction of five acts being accidental and arbitrary. This Shakespeare knew, and this he practised. His plays were written, 
and at first printed in one unbroken continuity, and ought now to be exhibited with short pauses, interposed as often as the scene is changed, or any considerable time is required to pass. This method would at once quell a thousand absurdities. In restoring the author's works to their integrity, I have considered the punctuation as wholly in my power, for what could be their care of colons and commas, who corrupted words and sentences? Whatever could be done by adjusting points is therefore silently performed, in some plays with much diligence, in others with less. It is hard to keep a busy eye steadily fixed upon evanescent atoms, or a discursive mind upon evanescent truth. The same liberty has been taken with a few particles, or other words of slight effect. I have sometimes inserted or omitted them without notice. I have done that sometimes, which other editors have done always, and which indeed the state of the text may sufficiently justify. The greater part of readers, instead of blaming us for passing trifles, will wonder that on mere trifles so much labour is expended, with such importance of debate, and such solemnity of diction. To these I answer with confidence that they are judging of an art which they do not understand, yet cannot much reproach them with their ignorance, nor promise that they would become in general by learning criticism more useful, happier, or wiser. As I practice conjecture more, I learned to trust it less, and after I had printed a few plays, resolved to insert none of my own readings in the text. Upon this caution I now congratulate myself, for every day increases my doubt of my emendations. Since I have confined my imagination to the margin, it must not be considered as very reprehensible, if I have suffered it to play some freaks in its own dominion. There is no danger in conjecture, if it be proposed, as conjecture, and while the text remains uninjured, those changes may be safely offered, which are not considered even by him that offers them as necessary or safe. If my readings are of little value, they have not been ostentatiously displayed, or importunately obtruded. I could have written longer notes, for the art of writing notes is not of difficult attainment. The work is performed, first, by railing at the stupidity, negligence, ignorance, and asinine tastelessness of the former editors, and showing, from all that goes before and all that follows, the inelegance and absurdity of the old reading, then by proposing something which to superficial readers would seem specious, but which the editor rejects with indignation, then by producing the true reading, with a long paraphrase, and concluding with loud acclamations on the discovery, and a sober wish for the advancement and prosperity of genuine criticism. All this may be done, and perhaps done sometimes with impropriety, but I have always suspected that the reading is right, which requires many words to prove it wrong, and the emendation wrong, 
that cannot with so much labour appear to be right. The justness of a happy restoration strikes at once, and the moral precept may be well applied to criticism, quod dubitas ne fuceres. To dread the shore which he sees spread with wrecks is natural to the sailor. I had before my eye so many critical adventures ended in miscarriage that caution was forced upon me. I encountered in every page wit struggling with its own sophistry, and learning confused by the multiplicity of its views. I was forced to censure those whom I admired, and could not but reflect, while I was dispossessing their emendations, how soon the same fate might happen to my own, and how many of the readings which I have corrected may be by some other editor defended and established. Critics, I saw, that others' names efface, and fix their own with labour in the place. Their own, like others, soon their place resigned, or disappeared, and left the first behind. Pope. That a conjectural critic should often be mistaken, cannot be wonderful, either to others or himself, if it be considered that in his art there is no system, no principle and axiomatical truth that regulates subordinate positions. His chance of error is renewed at every attempt, an oblique view of the passage, a slight misapprehension of a phrase, a casual inattention to the parts connected, is sufficient to make him not only fail, but fail ridiculously, and when he succeeds best, he produces, perhaps, but one reading of many probable, and he that suggests another will always be able to dispute his claims. It is an unhappy state in which danger is hid under pleasure. The allurements of emendation are scarcely resistible. Conjecture has all the joy and all the pride of invention, and he that has once started a happy change is too much delighted to consider what objections may rise against it. Yet conjectural criticism has been of great use in the learned world, nor is it my intention to depreciate a study that has exercised so many mighty minds, from the revival of learning to our own age, from the Bishop of Valeria to English Bentley. The critics on ancient authors have, in exercise of their sagacity, many assistances, which the editor of Shakespeare is condemned to want. They are employed upon grammatical and subtle languages, whose construction contributes so much to perspicuity, that Homer has fewer passages unintelligible than Chaucer. The words have not only a known regimen, but invariable quantities, which direct and confine the choice. There are commonly more manuscripts than one, and they do not often conspire in the same mistakes. Yet Scaliger could confess to Salmasius how little satisfaction his emendations gave him. Illudant nobis conjecture nostre, quadram nos pudet, post aquinem in miliordes codices incidimus. And Lipsius could complain that critics were making faults by trying to remove them. Ut olim vitis, 
ita nunc remedis laboratum and indeed where mere conjecture is to be used the emendations of scaliger and lipsius notwithstanding their wonderful sagacity and erudition are often vague and disputable like mine or theobald's perhaps i may not be more censured for doing wrong than for doing little for raising in the public expectations which at last i have not answered the expectation of ignorance is indefinite and that of knowledge is often tyrannical it is hard to satisfy those who know not what to demand or those who demand by design what they think impossible to be done i have indeed disappointed no opinion more than my own yet i have endeavoured to perform my task with no slight solicitude not a single passage in the whole work has appeared to me corrupt which i have not attempted to restore or obscure which i have not endeavoured to illustrate in many i have failed like others and from many after all my efforts i have retreated and confessed the repulse i have not passed over with affected superiority what is equally difficult to the reader and to myself but where i could not instruct him have owned my ignorance i might easily have accumulated a mass of seeming learning upon easy scenes but it ought not to be imputed to negligence that where nothing was necessary nothing has been done or that where others have said enough i have said no more notes are often necessary but they are necessary evils let him that is yet unacquainted with the powers of shakespeare and who desires to feel the highest pleasure that the drama can give read every play from the first scene to the last with utter negligence of all his commentators when his fancy is once on the wing let it not stoop at correction or explanation when his attention is strongly engaged let it disdain alike to turn aside to the name of theobald and of pope let him read on through the brightness and obscurity through integrity and corruption let him preserve his comprehension of the dialogue and his interest in the fable and when the pleasures of novelty have ceased let him attempt exactness and read the commentators Particular passages are cleared by notes, but the general effect of the work is weakened. The mind is refrigerated by interruption. The thoughts are diverted from the principal subject. The reader is weary, and he suspects not why, and at last throws away the book which he has too diligently studied. Parts are not to be examined till the whole has been surveyed. There is a kind of intellectual remoteness necessary for the comprehension of any great work in its full design and its true proportions. A close approach shows the smaller niceties, but the beauty of the whole is discerned no longer. It is not very grateful to consider how little the succession of editors has added to this author's power of pleasing. He was read, admired, studied and imitated while he was yet deformed with all the improprieties which ignorance and neglect could accumulate upon him while the reading was yet not rectified 
nor his allusions understood. Yet then did Dryden pronounce, quote, that Shakespeare was the man who, of all modern and perhaps ancient poets, had the largest and most comprehensive soul. Close quote. All the images of nature were still present to him, and he drew them not laboriously, but luckily. When he describes anything, yet more than see it, you feel it too. Those who accuse him to have wanted learning give him the greater commendation. He was naturally learned. He needed not the spectacles of books to read nature. He looked inwards and found her there. I cannot say he is everywhere alike. Were he so, I should do him injury to compare him with the greatest of mankind. He is many times flat and insipid, his comic wit degenerating into clinches, his serious swelling into bombast. But he is always great when some great occasion is presented to him. No man can say he ever had a fit subject for his wit, and did not then raise himself as high above the rest of poets. Quantum lenta solint, inter verberna cupressi. It is to be lamented that such a writer should want a commentary, that his language should become obsolete, or his sentiments obscure. But it is vain to carry wishes beyond the condition of human things. That which must happen to all has happened to Shakespeare by accident and time, and more than has been suffered by any other writer since the use of types has been suffered by him through his own negligence of fame, or perhaps by that superiority of mind which despised its own performances, when it compared them with its powers, and judged those works unworthy to be preserved, which the critics of following ages were to contend for the fame of restoring and explaining. Among the candidates of inferior fame, I am now to stand the judgment of the public, and wish that I could confidently produce my commentary as equal to the encouragement which I have had the honour of receiving. Every work of this kind is by its nature deficient, and I should feel little solicitude about the sentence were it to be pronounced only by the skilful and the learned. End of section 24